Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be uplifted, empowered and revived by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ram Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now let's get into this week's message. So it's great to be sharing with you this morning. Um, I'm not really used to speaking on Christmas themes. And so when I got the message from Pastor Stacy saying, oh, would you like to speak? Uh, I said, well, are you okay with Revival Christmas? <laughs> so here we are. So Father, thank you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. As we go through your word, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts, that you bring transformation, uh, that you would minister to us, uh, you cause us to align with your emphasis in this season. Uh, Lord, give me utterance to communicate your heart, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 1, 18 to 23, uh, we're, that's where we're going to start. It says, now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly but while he thought about these things behold an angel of the lord appeared to him in the dream saying joseph son of david do not be afraid to take to you mary your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the holy spirit and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled. And this is where I'm going. All this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, that prophecy... Uh, that Matthew quotes is from Isaiah. And I just want to emphasize something about that prophetic word. It is quite vague. It just says, the virgin shall be with child. It doesn't say what virgin. Okay, it just says the virgin. Now, if you go to the original prophecy, uh, which can be found in Isaiah, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, verse 13 and 14, we see a bit of context to the prophetic word. <clears throat> it says, Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself gives you a sign. So who is the you here is talking about? House of David. Who is he talking about? House of David. He's not just talking about every tribe, right? Are you with me? Yeah. I, need, I need feedback. Are you with me? Yeah. Good. He says, Hear, whole house of David, I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this prophetic word, there is a bit of, there's some, uh, there's some parameters to it. It's not just anyone. It's connected to the house of David. Everyone say the house of David. Now, you know, God can be quite specific when he prophesies. 
God knows exactly what's going to happen 200 years from now to the day. So it doesn't have, it's not like he's unable to give specific details that this was going to be Mary. Are you with me? But the prophecy didn't say Mary. Now let's look at another crazy, mind-blowing prophecy in the Old Testament. First Kings 13. First Kings 13, 1 till 2. It says this, And behold, the man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now Jeroboam is like, you know, the king of Israel. He's kind of instigated this worship system that God is really, really upset by. And uh, there's several reasons for that, which we're not going to go into now. But this guy is a wicked king. So this guy is doing his thing, burning incense. Um, read on. Then he cried out against the altar. So the man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, listen to this prophecy. Behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born to what house? What house? So the man of God is prophesying and he's very specific. So he's saying to this king that's wicked, there's going to be a child born in years to come. And his name is going to be Josiah by name. He shall be born to the house of David. On you he shall sacrifice of the high places who burn incense to you. And those bones shall be burned on you. And when you read, when you read the full context... And, you know, in fact, I'll just give you the reference. 2 Kings 23, 15 to 17. This prophecy was fulfilled. Are you tracking with me? So the man of God gives a prophetic word that a guy called Josiah is going to be born. And he's going to come and undo what this wicked king is doing. He says, this guy who's going to be born is from the house of David. And I'm going to give you his exact name. Now, can you guess how many years it took for that prophetic word to be fulfilled? 360 years. Did you hear me? Everyone say 360. 360. Now, when the prophecy was going to be fulfilled, in fact, let's look at it. 2 Kings 23, 15. Moreover, the altar, 2 Kings 23, 15 to 17. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin had made, both that altar and the high place, he broke down. So this is Josiah now in that kind of revolutionary mode. He's destroying altars. So this is now the day of Josiah we're reading about. 360 years later, as Josiah turned, he saw a tomb and there were, sorry, and he saw a tomb and they were there on the mountain, right? Okay, let me read on. And he sent and took the bones out of the tomb and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed. Who proclaimed these words? Then Josiah said, what gravestone is that I see? So at this point, Josiah, he is kind of destroying the altars of wickedness. Then he sees a gravestone. He says, what is that gravestone? So the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. Now, are you tracking with me? I know it's a bit of scripture. So, the man of God, we don't even know his name. He's just called the man of God. He prophesies with detail. 360 years later, 
The guy he prophesies about, he's doing what he prophesies, and he's destroying all the altars, and he finds a, a tomb and says, who is that? And the guy said to him, that is the tombstone of the guy who prophesied you were going to do this, and he prophesied your name. That if that happened to you, I mean, realize that's, that, that, that's a moment. <laughs> 360 years? The reason why I'm sharing this is I want you to realize that God is not unable to give very specific words. But in the case of Jesus, he didn't give the specific word about Mary. He did it right here, didn't he, with Josiah? Why didn't he give the specific word about Mary? Now, let's go back to that word in Matthew 1, 23. A virgin will give birth. Now, when I think about this, I think about the house of David. So, could it be that in the house of David... There were several virgins that qualified to fulfill this prophecy. Are you tracking with me? Could it be that this prophecy was hanging over the house of David, waiting for a woman that would align with the conditions of consecration necessary to host the prophetic word and birth it? Because God did not say Mary, he says, a virgin. Now, Imagine, by the way, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. You know that, right? Imagine things got intense just while they're betrothed to each other. And they got carried away. And they ended up sleeping with each other. A night before the planned angelic visitation. Do you realize what that would mean? That act would have disqualified her from carrying the promise. So to carry the promise of Jesus, there was a lifestyle requirement to host the weightiness of the promise. Samuel was a prophet that God wanted to release because Samuel ended up anointing David. Samuel, a significant prophet, you know, and the Bible says none of his words were allowed to fall to the ground. This man, he walked with God. Samuel is a significant prophet. But for Samuel to be born, heaven was not going to put Samuel in any common womb. It had to be a womb that appreciated the weightiness of the prophet Samuel. So you know how God orchestrated that situation? He made a woman barren. A woman that was supposed to have child. In fact, her name actually means she, she's one with children. He made a barren. Why do you think he made a barren? Because in her barrenness, something was stirring in her heart. There was agony. There was a cry. There was desperation. So we know that the second wife had sons and daughters, which kind of equates to at least four children. The second one had sons and daughters, and Hannah had none, right? Are you guys alive this morning? <laughs> the second wife had sons and daughters, and Hannah had none. So, she had about four, and at this point, Hannah is in desperation. So, God had to put Hannah in a place of desperation because there was a certain type of prayer that she had to pray that was going to align with how desperate she wanted a son. But that desperation was also connected to how much God valued the prophet Samuel. 
Are you with me? So in John, it says that, you know, uh, 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 God is looking for worshipers that will worship him in spirit and truth for such the Father seeks. So the Father is not seeking worshipers. I mean, the Father is not seeking worship. What is he seeking? He's seeking worshipers. Why? Because worshipers are seekers. Right? God himself is a seeker. So he's scanning the earth, looking for people that carry the same heart that he carries. Are you, are you with me? So he's like, okay, I'm not looking for just worship. I'm looking for worshipers because they are seekers. And there's something special about seeing your nature in your children. When they're manifesting who you are, as in the good parts of who you are, they're manifesting that you're like, yeah, that's so good. God likes to see himself in us. He's a seeker, so he's looking for seekers. In the same way Hannah was called to host Samuel in her womb and God valued Samuel so much he made sure she valued him as deeply so she was praying for a son while heaven was pregnant with a prophet she was just thinking I want to get a son I want to remove this reproach and embarrassment and God was preparing her to host one of the most significant prophets so the point I'm making and bringing us back to Mary is for God to release Jesus into the womb of Mary, there was a requirement of a lifestyle that God was putting on her to carry what he, what he was wanting to release. You know, it's so easy for us to pray and ask God to move and say, God, move in my city. God, move in my family. God, I want to see you do great things in Manchester. That is the easy part. I want to submit to you that for God to do certain things on the earth, he looks for people that he would consecrate. And that word basically means set apart to him. I think it's the RAF, the Second World War. Uh, Winston Churchill said, never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed to so many by so few. It's a famous speech by Winston Churchill, and he was referring to the RAF who had to win the Battle of Britain in the air. And they were the ones that were equipped for that battle, not just anyone else. But to be equipped for that battle, they had to subscribe to a certain lifestyle, disciplines. Ways of giving themselves that the masses were not. So because there was a special mission, there was now a special lifestyle that was necessary to align for that special mission to be fulfilled. God wants to move, but he's not just going to move through anyone. His requirements oftentimes start with seasons, if not our whole lives, being set apart to him in consecration. Now, others may, if our Christian friends may, get away with things. They may be able to date anyone they want to. They may be able to watch whatever they want to. But you may not. When you're called to a high purpose, that calling starts to limit your choices. John the Baptist was able to be such an effective voice in the wilderness. If you think about it, in the wilderness, multitudes came to him. It wasn't his great preaching that drew the multitudes. The death of his consecration on earth gave him influence in the heavens. And so when he spoke, the heavens mobilized the masses to come to hear what he was saying. He wasn't 
preaching and then kind of, you know, marketing skills. It wasn't his marketing skills. It wasn't his ability to just get words out on Instagram and, you know, pay promotion and, and get on CBN. See, because God had made him a voice in the wilderness. He was prepared through consecration. His voice carries such potency and authority that the masses were drawn. They didn't even know why they were being drawn, but it was a spirit drawing them. When God has called us to have impact in the earth, I thank God for great management skills. I thank God for great leadership skills. But I want to tell you, nothing will ever replace deep consecration. You might say, oh, well, what is consecration? Well, when you begin to have an understanding of the calling of God on your life, one of the things you need to begin to ask him is, Lord, what are the consecration requirements that you're placing on me to fulfill your purpose? If you're a Joseph, you can't be messing around and flirting with all the women that think you're good looking. Because you have to remain pure if you're going to get to the throne, Joseph. So God is like saying to Joseph, hey, listen, you're good looking and people are flirting with you, but you cannot afford to entertain it. There are people with a Joseph anointing, called to politics, called into those spheres of influence, but they are not aware that they have to be set apart in their heart to God way before the temptation comes. There's some times when you don't sit and rebuke the temptation, you run away. But if you've not settled in your heart your consecration requirements to fulfill the calling, then you're just going to easily fall for whatever comes. Oh, well, I guess, you know, I'm going to sin and I'm going to ask God to forgive me later. Listen, imagine if Mary was like, Lord, you know what, just this one time, myself and Joseph, we're so tempted right now. You know what, we're just going to sin and ask for repentance later. God will forgive you, but you've missed destiny. It's not that God doesn't care about you, but there's some actions you can take that would actually set you back another 10 years, another 20 years. Now, you may not know that. Just the momentary pleasure. You have no idea that that act right there has added another 20 years to your life in terms of you being able to fulfill God's purpose on your life. I remember hearing the story of a preacher. He was pure. He never flirted with, uh, you know, he never got involved in immorality. And all that. But he went home to his village. This is in Nigeria. Went home to his village. And uh, a lady sang in the choir. He got so tempted. And uh, he ended up building a relationship with this lady. He ended up sleeping with her. He went back home. And he was really sick. This is a true story. He was really sick. So he went to the doctors. They did all the tests. All the tests. They found nothing. So the doctor eventually said to him, listen, we've done everything. We don't know what's wrong with you. If it weren't that you're a man of God, I would have asked you to go for HIV test. And the guy said, listen, the, the guy who was sick said, listen, I know I'm a man of God, but I think I need to do the HIV test because I've messed up really bad. Did the HIV test, came back positive. Isn't it crazy that this guy was living right and the one time the one time he thought, you know what? No one is here with me in the village. They're all there at the university in the city. They don't know what I'm doing. The one time, boom, the enemy got him. See, when you come, listen, when you come to churches like this, you're implicated. Hope you realize that. <laughs> so if you need to leave, leave quickly. 
when you come to churches like this, you're implicated because the mission of this movement is revival. And so there's lifestyle requirements for us. So when you begin to say, yes, God, I want you. Yes, God. You know, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. I always say, God has plans for you, but so does the devil. He has meticulous plans for you. The sooner you realize it, the more you are now going to make plans for him. Are you hearing me? Joseph made plans for the devil. So when the temptation came, he knew it wasn't time to negotiate. It was time to run away. There's a time to sit. There's a time to stand. There's a time to walk. And then there's a time to run. Are, are you hearing me today? So when I read about Mary, I am convicted. I am stirred about her life of purity. A consecration that qualified her to carry and give birth to the King of Kings. Now, I want to turn to Matthew 2. I'm going to shift gears now. I want to talk about not just Mary, but I want to talk about, I want to talk about three groups of people. Matthew 2, 1 to 6. By the way, I've lost track of time. Okay, I can see the right. Okay, good. <laughs> now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When, her, when Herod heard these things, he was troubled and all, is, all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem, again they're quoting another prophetic word, but you Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, you, let me read that again, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judea, are you not the least of the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In this short reading, we see three groups of pe people. Everyone say three groups of people. The first group is Herod. Herod is threatened by the birth of Jesus. In a way, Herod represents the old wineskin. In a way, Herod represents something of an old order that is threatened by something new that God is about to release. Oftentimes, it's said that the people who are part of the previous move of God tend to often persecute the current move of God. So here you have Herod. He is thinking in the natural, thinking, I don't want another king. I don't want anyone else to reign. I just want to be the main guy. And because of that desire to be the main guy, he was threatened to destroy what God is wanting to do. This is a word for Ram Church. Even though we're going after a move of God, are we okay for God to release it in a way that we are not seeing the fullness of it right here, but other people are reaping the benefits of it over there? Because if we don't get to a place where we're like, God, I don't know who or how. I'm just desperate for you to move. 
I want to be part of your move. But Lord, if you're not using me as the main voice, Lord, I just want you to move. I remember hearing the testimony of a, a guy from Uganda. This guy was very involved in the occult uh, when he was young. I mean, it's a crazy story. This would blow your minds, especially Westerners. Are you ready for this? As a baby, he was married to someone that was his grandmother in this occultic ritual. Like, quite intense. And so, by the time he was three and four, people were coming to consult his wisdom in the demonic. He was so demon-possessed, he was like infiltrating and governing regions at such a young age. Okay, now he's saved, thank God, but crazy story. Now, how he got saved was this. He was sent on an assignment to destroy a church. The church, and by the way, he succeeded. <laughs> the church had 21 members. Everyone say 21. It had one guy who was the pastor and 20 women. And they, the guy had a revelation on something called covenant praying. So one day he preached about this at his church and said to everyone in the church, we're going to go on a covenant praying journey. And he says, before you sign up to this covenant praying thing, you need to hear the requirements. And these were the requirements. We're going to pray from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. for 90 days straight. We're going to pray prayers of worship, prayers of warfare, and prayers of repentance. He says, if any of you comes late to the prayer meeting, even if we're on day 40, we're going to reset to day one. If any of you is sick and can't come to the prayer meeting, even if we're on day 60, we're going to reset and start from day one. <laughs> Did you hear what I just said? <laughs> I'm already so stirred by the idea. He said this to the church. He says, he says how many of you want to commit to this? And they all says, we're in. So they're praying six hours a day intensely. Their prayer was so strong that uh, this guy that's now saved, he was summoned up to an international gathering of witches in somewhere in Europe. And they were discussing the destiny of nations in this meeting. And in the whole of Africa, if not in the whole of Uganda, the one church that bothered them the most, guess what church it was? <laughs> it was this church. So... His assignment was to go and destroy them. Now, I'm not going to tell you how he did it. That's a story for another time. <laughs> however, however, he said, as they started to pray and things were happening in the spirit, their church of 21 was not growing. This is where I'm really going. Their church was not growing, but they had no idea that because of their prayers, pastors in Brazil, pastors in other parts of the world were experiencing revivals. People in the demonic realm worked this out. And so they realized we have to shut down this church because if they get to day 90, I don't know how they worked it out. It worked out this church is going to secure revival for like many years. I can't remember the number of years now. Maybe something like 10 years. If they could get to day 90, they're going to secure something in the spirit that cannot be stopped for the next 10 years or something crazy. So they were like, we need to stop this church. But what really impacted, well, lots of things impacted me about this guy's testimony is the fact that the church had no idea that they were stirring revivals elsewhere and their number was not increasing. Do you know how easily we get distracted by numbers? 
Sometimes we could get numbers and there's not much happening. And sometimes we may not have the numbers and we're shifting things in the spirit. Now, that's not to say God is against numbers. I always want to balance that because that God is, for God so loved the world, he definitely loves numbers. However, we get so easily distracted. And the lesson from Herod, being a Herod is, we don't want to be people that get threatened when it's not happening through us. Are you okay for God to raise someone else up? And for them to be anointed, more gifted than you, and you, you're like, oh, and with, with, you see, the thing is, it's, it's not wrong that you feel the envy of the jealousy. It's wrong that you tolerate it. It's wrong that you entertain it and you try to spiritualize it or look for an excuse, but you're not dealing with it. Lord, I'm feeling envious right now. I don't know why, but I'm just feeling this. That's pointing to something in you that needs to get to the cross. So we don't want to become a Herod. That's the first group of people in this passage. The second group is the chief priests. They had all the information about Jesus. <laughs> With all the information they had about Jesus... They did not have a personal desire for encountering him. Their heads were full of information. They studied it. They could explain it, but they couldn't experience it. They were so familiar with the text, they were not fascinated by the man. So they had got into just filling their heads with information. They could even tell Herod where the king will be born. How can you tell him where he's going to be born and not be bothered enough to go and see? You know what? I want to see this king myself. They were not bothered. They were stuck in a religious motion. See, in this generation, we're so filled with information. YouTube is there. You come to church, you hear information. You listen to this, you hear another preacher. You go on Instagram, so many preachers, so many short messages. It's everywhere. We're filled with so much. But it could be that even though there's so much available to us in our generation, we could be at the same time spiritually and biblically bankrupt in that we are not really having encounters with the living word, even though we have a lot around us that could lead us to those encounters. Information. Many people get satisfied with information. You know, the fact that you've read a Bible passage doesn't mean you know it. The fact, the fact that you memorize a Bible passage does not mean you know it. Oh, preachers, the fact that you can preach a Bible passage doesn't mean you know it. Because in the Hebraic mindset, to know is by experience. We're in the Western culture where knowing is all about degrees. You can go to university, get a business degree. It doesn't mean you know anything about business until you start your own business. You can talk business all you want. Well, tell me what you have done. Have you not met people that like to talk the talk? If I even theologically, they want to explain everything. I'm like, I, what kind of prayer life do you have? I want to what? <laughs> people, you see, the talk is easy. They like to talk, talk, talk. I want to see what you live like. So this is why sometimes I don't like listening to certain people, even in the context of preaching, because I want to know the wealth from which you're drawing. Where is your source? Is it intellect and just human reasoning? Or is it steeped in that reality of, I think, Matthew 16, where Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this one. So there is a dimension of revelation that can come of flesh and blood. Jesus says, but my Father who is in heaven, I want to drink from wells and feed and be around people that are connected to the source. 
People who are not just wanting to be echoes, but are voices because they've been an ear in the secret place and they know how to be with God. In our generation, we have great preachers, great teachers, great messages, but none of that will change you until you get dissatisfied with information. And then you go, Lord, I've heard, I've heard it preached. I've heard it said, but I want to know you for myself. So are you going to be a Herod that's threatened? Or are you going to be a scribe that's just satisfied with information? Or are you going to be a wise man that says, I've heard he's born. I'm not satisfied with the information. I am not threatened about his birth. I want to experience him myself. So the wise men, you know the story. They find Jesus and they experience Jesus for themselves. Can you imagine how crazy it is for grown men to be worshipping a baby? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> worshipping a baby? That doesn't make any sense unless you have revelation about who the baby is. Right? The baby is small. The baby is just pooed. <laughs> Believe it or not, Jesus did poo. I know that's a new information to your brain, but it did happen. He was completely human. Michael preached that last week. So imagine them bowing to and worshiping a baby. Their encounter with Jesus was small. I mean, compare their encounter to Elijah. Who was being translated by the Spirit, called on fire from heaven. Compare their encounter with Moses, who is on the mountaintop and a cloud come down from heaven. See, this is the danger. We can get carried away by the spectacular and miss the supernatural. Because God is not always in the spectacular. Now, God does move in the spectacular. Cloud from heaven, fire from heaven, translation, chariots of fire, the Red Sea split into. God is a God of drama. <laughs> Just read your Bible. Lots of drama in the Bible. However, oftentimes in our... Most of us probably not have heard the audible voice of God, like, you know, God speaking on me. And even if you think you've heard it, oftentimes it might be so, or it might be like a loud sense of the spirit within you, not in a way where everyone around you hears what you've heard. So the day-to-day -day walk with God is not always spectacular. But that's not to mean it's not meant to be supernatural. So the wise man's encounter with baby Jesus was even in a sense smaller than Elijah's, than Moses's. So their encounter was small, yet far bigger. Are, are you hearing me? <laughs> because they were encountering the Savior, that Jesus in human form, the Word became flesh. They were able to behold Him. But it didn't seem as dramatic. In fact, it seemed ordinary. Do you know what that means for some of you here? Some of you despise your experiences with God because it's not spectacular and massive. You think because you didn't get saved from drugs and you didn't get saved from this over here and you just had a sense of the peace. You know, it was just a small sense of the peace of God you felt in your heart when you prayed. But the other guy over there had a vision of an angel. And so the other guy over there had a vision of a demon and cast them out. The other guy over there. And you're like, you know what? 
my, my encounter is small. The fact that your encounter is small does not mean it's, it's insignificant. Are you hearing me? Don't despise your encounter because it's small. You don't read about the wise man coming to Jesus again when he was 12, when he was 30, when he was 33. So this is where we part ways with the wise men. Because the encounter was small because it wasn't meant to be the only encounter. That encounter was meant to stir hunger for more encounters. So don't despise the size of the encounter because it's not huge. I was speaking to a leader recently. And they were telling me how frustrated they were. And it took me a while to process it. And so they were telling me about some times they go away to pray. They would spend like three days retreat kind of thing. But come back from those retreats feeling depressed because they didn't have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And as I heard that, I was like, okay, I can see you're hungry. But there was a part of me that still felt unsettled. And as I was processing that, I realized, like, what I felt unsettled about was the lack of gratitude for the small. Because the times I spent hours praying, and even though I've not had a massive encounter, I sense something different in me. It might not be huge, but something is happening. So even if Jesus has not walked into my room, I've not seen an angel, I've not cast out a demon, I've not saved the whole of Manchester, I've not released revival, even if all that's not happened, I am still grateful for the small that's just happened right now. While I'm longing for the more. So it's like a delicate balance of, I don't despise the days of small beginnings, but I'm looking forward to greater manifestations. The Pharisees... The Pharisees were not curious about Jesus when he was a baby, but became his critic when he was mature. They were not fascinated with him as a baby, but they wanted to criticize him when he was mature. See, can you recognize, think of Jesus as the move of God. Can you recognize the move of God as a baby? Are you hearing what I'm saying? You can criticize, you know, Herod and the people that lived in those days. But let's try to translate it to today. Would you recognize the move of God in baby form in this region, in this nation? Because not many people do. Many people want to be connected with something when it's big and when it's influential. And when, well, don't you want to be one of those that recognize it in a baby form and are able to give yourself, whether anyone celebrates it or not? You just know this is the move of God and I'm going to give myself to it. The wise man saw something that I believe the Lord wants us to see. They saw Jesus for who he really was. And so they were able to bow down. They were able to worship. They were able to give themselves. They didn't despise the size of the encounter. As I wrap up right now, I really felt like as I was just praying over this, that in many ways, even with Ram Church, we are in a place where where we are right now is not where we are going to be. There is so much more that God has called us to. 
at this time, when the move of God in our midst is in baby form, we're not going to despise it. We're not going to compare ourselves to something else out there. We're going to honor what God is doing in our midst, even if it is small. But we're going to be expectant for greater, for that small to mature even more. And I feel like there are people in this room right now where, you know, you listen to people like me preach or Micah or other people and you think, goodness me, I don't know God like they do. I don't feel like, you know, I have a strong relationship with God. But I feel the Lord wants to encourage you that you have the seed of God within you. You have encountered his presence. Don't despise it and think it's nothing spectacular because you didn't have an angelic visitation or something massive. I wrap up my message with this. God is calling us to consecrations and purity. That's one. Two, he's calling us not to be like Herod who get threatened. He's calling us not to be like the Pharisees who just want information but no transformation. He's calling us to be like the wise men who are hungry to encounter Jesus for themselves. But also, don't despise the size of the encounter. But want to keep coming back for more. Because the more of Him we encounter, the more of Him we're going to have. And you know, the thing is, you can encounter Jesus once and He could change you. But if you keep encountering Jesus... That encounter can change a region. It can change a family. It can change a nation. Until we stand in a place where we have met God and are meeting God on a regular basis, we don't have the authority to change a nation. So I don't know about you. Today, my heart desires, Lord, I want to encounter you in a deeper way, not just by information, I want revelation and I want transformation and I want it to keep growing. I want it to keep getting bigger and bigger that this time next year I'm in a deeper place with you because I'm not despising the encounters. For some of you, you may not have a strong prayer life, but even as you step into this environment, as we're worshiping and singing, you can sense the presence of God. You don't know what it is. You can sense peace on your heart. You can sense something. You, you don't know what words to give it. Can I just tell you, you're encountering the presence of God. Don't despise it. Lean into it. There is more. There is more than what you've encountered. There is more. Do you understand with me? Oftentimes, as we step into the Christmas season, I realize that for many Christians, it could be a time where your spiritual life goes on a vacation. How about we enter this Christmas season with some plans of not just feeling ourselves with entertainment, again, drunk on entertainment and food, but saying, Lord, I want to lean into encounter. I want to lean into you, even if, it not, if it's not looking like a big encounter, massive experience. Lord, I want to lean into your word. Even if I feel bored, I want to stay there. 
because I know you're real. I know this is something that you desire more from me. And it's, it's something I want to give myself to more of because there is more of you I need to experience. And so if you're in this place and you say, yes, God, I want to be reconsecrated to you. I want to live pure, but I also want to pursue your presence. I want to let go of the threat of someone else being raised up that's better than me. I want to let go of just the religion of just coming to church. I want to encounter. If that's you, just lift your hands with me right now. We're just going to rededicate ourselves to pursuing his presence this Christmas. Father, we lift our hands to you right now. You know our shortcomings. You know that the distractions, the things that so easily get our attention and turn us away from you. Father, as we lift our hands to you this Sunday morning, we're saying yes to pursuit. We're saying yes to seeking you. We're saying yes to your presence. We're saying yes, we want to have you more than anything else. We're not satisfied with just theology. We want reality of encounter. We don't want to just hear a prophecy about the virgin that's going to give birth. We want to be qualified to carry that which you want to birth. We want to align with the consecration requirements to give birth to the revival that our nation needs. So Father, we just say yes to you right now. Have your way in us. Have your way through us. In Jesus' name. Just take a few moments to pray in your own words. You know, you might want to just close your eyes. Just take some time to say, Lord, I, I want to just reconnect with pursuit. I want to reconnect with seeking. Let hunger arise. Break off that religious mindset that's satisfied with just coming to church and ticking a box. Break off that ideology that allows me to connect with the ways of the world. I don't want that anymore. You know, just, just pray in your own words right now. Don't wait for me to lead you in prayer. Just pray in your own words right now.